Hey guys, and welcome to Hacked Off. In today's episode, I've got a special guest. I've got Mike Koss in the studio. He's Head of Security and Risk at N Brown Group. Uh, Mike, why don't you give us a little bit of an introduction to your to your background? How did you become Head of Security and Risk? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, first, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, so I've been at N Brown Group for two and a half years, um, but I've got a fairly uh, lengthy career in information security. Started about 23 years ago. Um, started off as a black hat hacker in uh, 95, um, sort of back in the old days whereby it wasn't uh, so crime orientated and a bit more like a game of chess. Um, being from Scotland and Aberdeen, <clears throat> I um, pretty much had a couple of choices. Um, I could uh, stay there in Aberdeen and work on oil or drink myself to death or choose a third option, which was to uh, move down to London and actually start a, a proper professional IT security career. So uh, I moved to London in my 20s <clears throat> and then basically fell into uh, some very interesting uh, in, uh, roles. Uh, ended up looking after the Treasury's uh, website and the security for that um, in my 20s. Um, at the end of that, I ended up working for Disney for a while as Jafar. Um, <laughs> and then ended up in finance and now I'm sitting in uh, the Northwest in retail for my sins. Is retail the goal then? Is that what you were looking for? You're building up to retail? Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> um, no, retail was a, an interesting opportunity for me. Um, sort of a chance to sort of take something that... Uh, well, retail's not known for its IT security, really, mm -hmm. is it? So um, M. Brown had a vision to mature rapidly, and um, they, they hired me to deliver a fairly aggressive IT security transformation. And I've been doing that for the last uh, two years. I think that makes a lot of sense, actually. I, I often tell people in the pen testing role, the companies that I like working for are like finance companies and, mm. and gambling companies and people like that. And, and I say the reason behind that is when you get to the end of the pen test, you know when you've won, you've got payment cards, right? Mm -hmm. And that would be true of retail as well. You take significant payment through payment cards, so that's a target for attackers, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, retail, the, the attack landscape is massive. Um, the amount of things that we're trying to do, it's always a very competitive market. People are always trying to roll out new features, better ways to entice people to shop with them. Um, the amount of data that they're collecting is uh, ever increasing. Um, so it is actually one of those sort of key targets that maybe we don't think about straight off the bat, because you're right, uh, finance, government, um, utility companies, they tend to be the ones that we think of. Anything that's critical national infrastructure gets the main bulk of your sort of pen testing budget and it's understood that these are vitally important things to do. In retail, although you've got PCI requirements and stuff, you, you maybe don't look at the whole broad scope of IT security and you are maybe just doing a bit of a tick box exercise. Yeah, I think that's a thing with with certain compliance uh, requirements, isn't it? If you're if you're given a set of tasks that you must complete, it can be quite easy to to fall back on this being security, <clears throat> right? We tick these boxes and we've got ourselves a security. And you know what? That's the that works for the most part, right? Let, let, let's be honest. There's a large number of companies out there, smaller size businesses that maybe don't need to have an aggressive uh, understanding of pen testing or security operations. But as you grow into a certain size, as you start to see sort of the effects of GDPR, especially with the latest uh, BA fines that have come across, bigger organizations and small to medium sized businesses need to start taking uh, note of it and actually doing more than just their PCI minimum requirement 
or making sure that they've got the cyber essentials in place. You need to be looking at a much more deeper IT security, security in depth type approach to things. And I think that's we're, we're seeing that now in retail, not just the big guys, but also some of the, the smaller brands. And uh, it's an admirable sort of uh, move in the right direction. Yeah, it's interesting mentioning the the beer fine as well, because that hack was a long time ago, right? That was yeah. like June of 2018 that that started. But it's just now the fine or the uh, intention to fine. Is so, that the correct Yeah, that's word? the correct word, because I've seen this, uh, I think it blew up on Twitter yesterday, yeah. didn't it? It was a case that uh, somebody said that it was 189 million. And yeah. I think it was the, the intention to fine. So I think the, the common belief now is that it'll go through the courts and they'll spend months in that. And no doubt they'll come out with a redu- reduced fine. Mm-hmm. But for the ICO, uh, 189 um, million is a sort of first shot across the bow is um, mm-hmm. should be a wake-up call, I think, to uh, to a number of businesses, not just the big players. Yeah, I think my, my first uh, thing that I checked waking up to seeing this uh, intent to fine was, okay, so the figure's huge, right? 180-something mm. million intent to fine. Mm. Uh, my first question was, what percentage of, of revenue, right? What percentage of turnover? So I think it turned out about 2%, wasn't it? A little bit lower. I, uh, my calculations might be off, right? Mm. I'm, I'm not a, a maths major, but I think it's about 1.5%. Okay. So it's it's right in that GDPR area, isn't it? it? Is. What they've been threatening with. It is, which is quite interesting because we always thought, you know, everyone's sort of taking the view, and well, there's a number of cynics amongst the IT security practitioner and probably some compliance people as well, that it would be a case that, the ICO wouldn't be able to have enough resources to get mm-hmm. this together. And now we're actually seeing the sort of the the, the fruits of their labor. Um, it's an unfortunate fine, I think, um, if you look at sort of how it was done and the fact that it was major car and third party and, you know. But it's definitely a wake-up call. Um, and obviously the fact I had to have a quick chat with the board yesterday, first thing in, Mike, what does this mean for us? I was like, well, we're, we're not an airline. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, obviously, the the board are looking to security practitioners now, or especially senior uh, security leaders, to sort of give them a view of that landscape and see. Because I, th- I think we all thought it would be a bit like data protection, right? Yeah. And I think we're now seeing it has teeth. And I think the board are now waking up to that, which I think is going to help us with our security budgets quite a lot in the next year. This is like this week, though, right? Because I remember thinking up until this became news, where, where GDPR was almost defanged because you would just say, Oh, yeah, but who's been fined? It's been a year. It's been over a year. Who's been fined? And I think now we have one that we can point at, right? And, okay, it's it's uh, not necessarily the same sector that people will be working in, but... Yeah, but, I mean, it it, it is. You're right, because I would say that pretty much <clears throat> the majority of businesses will have freaked out and done just enough or just maybe not enough for GDPR. Um, and then a year passed, and we're all sitting there going, well, oh, that was a waste of money. <laughs> um, and now we're looking at it with different eyes going, okay... Is there anything else we still need to do? So I think this might focus the mind again. Um, you know, it's 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 always it's always sad when a company gets fined for a data breach mm-hmm. because, um, with my background and my understanding of security as well as your own, these things are going to happen, right? There is no way to protect yourselves a hundred percent. I think it's an interesting first one mm. as well, on account of the fact what what you point out the third party thing, right? It yeah. being a magic card attack and. Okay, so some people won't know the distinction that we're talking about here, but I, I guess what we're saying is something, something supply chain. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I think that's a, a concern for people. It, it wasn't... One way of wording it would be BA wasn't hacked, right? Okay, so they felt the impact and it was yep. their records that were stolen, mm-hmm. but it came through a third party. And that's just a interesting dimension. But it always goes back to the, was it, Aircon unit for Target? Was it Target? 
Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so Target was hit through yeah, the yeah. HVAC vendor and then Home Depot the year after. That's uh, 2013 for Target. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we shouldn't be sitting here going, oh, well, these third-party things are new, <laughs> right? We, we've known about this for, what's it, 2019 now, right? So we're six years on, right? And when that one first dropped, I remember thinking, God, that was clever. And now we're looking at different things now. It's now JavaScripts and third parties that may be collecting some, I don't know, metrics on conversion, right? But... There's something to be said that we understand from a retail... And if you look at EBA, right? Okay, so it's an airline, but it's still a retail function, right? They are still selling something through their website. And one of the biggest things that you have is within marketing, with return on investment, with conversion, the amount of third-party JavaScripts you are putting willy-nilly across your website is outstanding. It's just, it, is, it, it just begs belief. You shoot, Okay, granted, your main pages, your user journey, exactly. But when you get to that critical point, come on, we should be sanitizing it, right? It should just literally be the page. If you're loading third-party JavaScript on a payment page. But but my marketing and my analytics and my user tracking. I just threw up a little in my mouth. <laughs> but, you know, it's true. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard from an IT security point of view to argue against that because you are right. The business needs to have their marketing. They need to have their analytics. So how are we going to be ever able to properly measure our, our, you know, mm-hmm. um, our conversion? And it's like, well, can't you just look at the bank balance? Yeah, and I think this is a, a, a distinction between the techies and the business side things, right? Yeah. So when we talk about things like the attack surface and mm. we say minimizing the attack surface, or get rid of all functions that aren't required. Yeah. And we would say, well, they're not required. Marketing, you know, analytics, mm-hmm. that's not required. No. But then the business is going to turn around and say, well, it's effectively how we monetize. It's intrinsic to how we monetize it or is. make sure that conversion is going through. Um, so they would required to them, it has a different meaning. But then we go back to my original point. How can you ever be 100% secure? Do you want me to give you a list now? Yeah, that'd be, that'd be I, great. Because, like, seriously, I, 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 I kind of I need some help, some pointers. <laughs> <laughs> the, the problem is that we are still moving in a way whereby we need to have these functionalities, these business requirements, right? Mm-hmm. Security is still second or third place. Um, and hopefully, this fine will focus the mind a little bit more. Because if we continue to do these things to please the business and you end up getting 1.5% fine of your annual turnover. Is that worth your marketing and your preferences and your monetization? Probably not. But that's the good thing, right? That's the that's the question you can pose in the boardroom. For all of these companies who are looking at this news, having emergency board meetings about mm-hmm. it, and you now have that, is yeah. it worth this amount? And you have evidence that that's, that's what's at risk. Exactly. And it's been, you know, there's only so much fear, uncertainty and doubt you can sow into your presentation to the board um, without having some facts to back it up. And now, like you say, we do. And that's that's a big figure. So, you know, hopefully some people will be reflective, uh, some board members will be reflective, some marketing departments will probably have to be educated. But I think it is probably time for us to take another look at you know, what we're doing. And look, don't get me wrong, I've only been at M. Brown for two and a bit years and we still have a long way to go. I'm not saying by any means that we are far down that journey. But I'm hoping that this will allow us to have those conversations in a sensible manner with the departments that require those metrics. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so that security relationship with the board, that that's an interesting one though, isn't it? Because mm. people always talk about things like, oh, I tell you what, a colleague, a former colleague of mine, I was complaining recently, a couple of weeks ago, he's saying, uh, I did this presentation to the board and they just didn't understand. They didn't understand anything that I was saying. And I'm sitting there thinking, you used the wrong words then, didn't mm. you? It's like, the, if they didn't understand, then the presentation's bad, right? How do you feel that security relationship to the board is at the moment? I think it's probably, 
in a good place from what I've seen. I think it's in a better place than it has been for a while. I mean, there's obviously the, the initial, if you're going new into a role or it's the first time you're presenting to the board, it's how do you translate what you're trying to say to them in a way that they'll understand. So, for example, my first board presentation to uh, the Anne Brown board was uh, I pulled up a picture of North Korea at night. And uh, if you've seen that before, it's pretty much the entire country is dark apart from Pongyang, which mm-hmm. is lit up. And I sort of told a story around how come that was the visibility that Anne Brown had across their estate. Uh, with the rest of the country being dark and a very sort of, let's say, 5% they were able to see. And it was all compliance-based. And then I took them on a journey and told them what we needed to do over the last sort of two years to get to, and obviously I used Vegas at night, lights are always on and Black Hat and DEFCON. But making it relatable and understandable, not going in with the, you know, if you're a techie, it's hard not to be a techie, but it's trying to find that way to to pivot between being a techie. Yeah, you still need to sort of pull out the, the you know, the, the technical bits from time to time, but you still need to be able to sell them a story and a journey. Um, and I mean, I'm a, I play the massive hacker caricature quite well, and I think certain boards buy into that, definitely. I think uh, <laughs> one thing you reminded me of there is um, things like acronyms, right? You're yeah. talking to the board and we use... The, there's a certain hacker slang, isn't mm-hmm. there? You know, the, the certain the words that we can use where techies would just intrinsically understand them. And uh, a I, I, good example, talking uh, to the hosting side, um, yesterday, one of the words that the techies had used that the hosting side had just taken, just like, okay, this is the word that means this mm-hmm. thing, CVE. They used the term CVE instead of software vulnerability. Yeah, yeah. But to us, that's, that's a synonym, right? Yeah, exactly. But it's another acronym that somebody might not know and at the board level they might not know. Yeah, I mean, even now I changed from fear, uncertainty, doubt from FUD to actually call it out just yeah. because I don't want to be acronym heavy. And that's maybe a part of training that you just get with, you know, speaking to non-technical people and having to take your story across quite yeah. quite a lot. And it, it, it's hard. And, it, you know, there's many times I have to go back through documents that I'll do a first pass on and then rewrite it and take the acronyms out mm. so that I can actually talk through it. Yeah, also, uh, FUD definitely should be fully undetectable, oh, the malware a, side of well, things. That's and, always nice as well. Yeah, it's uh, a, another problem with um, certainly certainly security, but definitely wider IT is we can't just have one acronym, right? Oh, we have then. to use the same one multiple times. Yeah, that's very true. So you've been in security for a long time, right? That was a part of the introduction is you've, you've seen things change a couple mm. of decades. Yeah. Um, how did things used to be? How are things right at the beginning? I, I guess I'm talking about when it was a hobbyist thing. Yeah, thanks for making me feel old. Uh, I try to. Yeah, no, it's all right. Um, do you remember the 80s? <laughs> I do remember the 80s. So um, I, I think from the hobbyist point of view, like having that introduction, so I worked for um, one of the first ISPs in Scotland, so Internet Service Providers, just to deacronym it there <laughs> for you. Um, and it was a really, it was really cool. You know, uh, You know, I was a 15-year-old kid. Um, I was literally working in a basement just to be stereotyped and cliched. Um, We had racks of modems. We were the first people in Scotland to have 33.6 kbps. Fantastic. Is this like 2010? (laughs) 1995. I hate you. Scotland's not that far behind. For the benefit of the audience, Mike physically twitched when I said that. (laughs) You haven't upended the chair yet. That's coming, I can tell. Um, and it was, you know, it was a really interesting time to be there. And there was another ISP called Wintermute. And anyone familiar with uh, the Neuromancer? Is Neuromancer Necromancer? Neuromancer, isn't it? Yeah, Wintermute's the evil AI, apparently. Mm-hmm. So they were named on that. And we basically just used to try and hack each other all the time for the lols. But it was never malicious. It was never meant to um, 
cause damage. It was just a case of proving a point. It was like a big game of chess. And I think the hobbyist thing back then was much more of what it was to be a hacker, right? It was a case of finding a green box in the street, opening mm. it up and connecting your crocodile clips and getting a dial tone and spending the rest of the time on a bulletin board with the US guys talking about LOPHT or 2600 or PHUK and sharing knowledge. I mean, my first <clears throat> mobile phone was a Motorola DiTac phone, which uh, as a 15-year-old kid in a school uniform was, you know, pretty uh, edgy back in 1995. And the only reason I had that phone not because I used it to make any calls, but if you put a piece of tinfoil in the third pin in the battery, it turned into a handheld scanner. Because in 1995, sorry, still in age days, for, you know, just to make myself feel even older, everything was analog. It was not GSM, there's no encryption. So you have a 15-year-old kid walking around Aberdeen, which was a massive oil industry back then, listening in to uh, one-sided conversations with a mobile phone. I think I think that's uh, it's one of these things, though, right? We have to... I have to remember that a lot of that is still true. So you think of today's 15-year-old. Okay, mm. so they're not going to get a, a Motorola cell phone, but there's going to be systems online that are vulnerable in simple ways. Not the same ways, but simple ways. Are you baiting me into discussing about a SQL injection into a communications organization that may have happened in the last five years? Oh, that. No, I wasn't baiting for oh, that at all. Okay. But that is a that is a prime example. It is. We could talk about something unrelated, though, right? We could talk about something like the Talk Talk breach of 2015. That would be really bad. Who would do that? Yeah. Um, but, I mean, for that example, I mean, wasn't a, a very basic SQL injection? And those guys were able to leverage that? Yeah, so it's a, the, the full detail of the story is uh, a little bit complicated. But in short, yes, there was a system that was owned by TalkTalk. If my mm. memory serves me well, it, it wasn't a TalkTalk system. It was a Tiscally system, but oh. they'd, they'd acquired. Yeah, yeah, acquisitions. Acquired yeah, so there's a whole thing to discuss there about acquisitions and, and mm. due diligence around the security. But the point being, SQL injection, ancient vulnerability, right? What first disclosed? 1998, Christmas Day, Frack magazine. Yeah, that's right. Do you remember but reading that I, when it was first released? I, I do. I also, yeah. Uh, what was his name? What was the guy's Rainforest name? Puppy. That's it. Rainforest Puppy. Fantastic so, paper. So Rainforest Puppy in 1998 released yeah, that yeah. paper. And if you if you read it, um, it, it's written in a way that's, hey, everyone knows this already, but I'm yeah. just writing it down. Yeah. And and that was 1998, right? And then in 2015, we're seeing um, the same attack, and it, and it is the same attack. It hasn't changed in any meaningful way, other than, of course, we have tools like SQL Map now. Yeah, I still, have a, I still have a whiteboard at home from a SQL injection that I handcrafted over the course of several months, mm. and I'd like build up the statement over time. Um, and that was actually the last 10 years, uh, not even 10 years, five years, only because I don't want to use automation. Now, the reason that you've got SQL Map is it makes it easier. But if you look at the amount of data that you are punching through that website to try and exfiltrate the data mm -hmm. or find the vulnerability, any, well, never mind. I was going to say any decent security team would spot that, but let's be honest, there's a lot of noise out there. Yeah, there is. And there's there's a lot of, I'm, I'm writing a talk at the moment, actually, for a presentation I'm doing next week about data breach response. And it, and it gets difficult, and it leads back into that board discussion that we had earlier. So one of the things that uh, allegedly um, Dito Harding, the CEO of TalkTalk Talk at the time, said was uh, they suffered a sequential injection attack, right? Yeah. Uh, so a, a terminology issue, but it, it's, for me, the CEO shouldn't be intimately familiar with structured query language and, and how that works as an attack. No, that's it my is, job, right? It is funny when they get it wrong and they say things like that. But they stole our data with a DDoS attack. Um, <laughs> that happens, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, so uh, a major breach that was mm. um, conducted by a child at the time yeah, of the offence. Yeah, and yeah. I, I remember as well reading about that breach and um, you, you couldn't name the attacker. Yeah, because because there are, it was under 16? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But if you, if you Google, then yeah. Google will tell you because Google doesn't care, right? No. Or it's just gathering this information mm-hmm. from somewhere from mm-hmm. somebody who doesn't care. So the, yeah, that was that was crazy. Um, but I mean, there's still just to go back to the if you look at the SQL injection stuff, it's still on the OAuth top ten, right? And it's still number one. It's still number one, right? Injection, injection. as a class is yeah. still number one. So well done for all those you know years, decades that we've had to address it. Two decades now. Mm, yeah, um, I was looking at old OWASP recently, actually, mm. like the 2003-2004 first release. And then in 2007, cross-site scripting was number one, yep. and that's fallen yep. to number seven now. I saw an interesting article or tweet when I was on the way over here about bug bounties in cross-site scripting and how come it's an underutilized vulnerability. I actually got paid off a bug bounty for cross-site scripting in the last three years. I wrote an article a little while ago that had basically that title. Um, Maybe it was the one that I just read. I, I'm not sure, but the, what I was <clears> talking <throat> about in terms of um, cross-site scripting is an under, underutilized vulnerability. Mm. In the context of bug bounties, right, mm. you, you find a cross-site scripting vulnerability, you pop an alert box, and yeah. then you get your pay. Yeah. And that's it. I found a vulnerability, here's my proof of concept, pay me. And you can do so much more with that vulnerability. So when I worked for a large global media organization with a figurehead of a rodent um, I used to use that, leverage that quite a lot. As mm-hmm. uh, I looked after the security for Asia Pack, uh, EMEA, and some of their marketing websites of third parties. Yeah, again, and the amount of times that you could leverage a cross-site scripting to drop a authentic- authentication cookie mm-hmm. and use that for logging in, steal it, send it somewhere else, and then yeah, yeah. getting as people. Everyone's like, alert one, yay! Proof yeah. of concept, Penny. Yeah, slow hand clap for you, sir. Yeah, this is funny, right? So back in 2007, cross-site scripting was the number one, mm. and and now, and since then, since 2010. Injection's been the number one. Mm. And and I always try and work out with the OWASP, why do they make these distinctions, right? And the only thing I can think for cross-site scripting, it isn't commonality. Cross-site scripting is super common in my experience. Yes. Um, so it's got to be that reflected cross-site scripting requiring a social engineering attack and that decreasing <laughs> the likelihood of exploitation. But then what about stored? Yeah, or DOM-based, which is yeah. interesting from a detection point of view. Do you think it's because... Now, I saw some table of figures recently uh, included in a presentation that was around the number of records of data breaches for the first quarter of 2019. And yet again, it was starting to trend more to external compromise mm-hmm. being bigger than internal. If you take away uh, accidental leakage from yeah. non-malicious insiders. So if you're looking at malicious insiders, which is the one that everyone used to say was the number one threat, the one thing you had to protect it from. Nowadays, it seems to be the external attacks are generating greater numbers of breaches and data loss than your malicious insider. So maybe that's why injection's there, because it's most done predominantly from a web-based or a web app type thing. Oh, okay, yeah. Done across anything, but maybe I, that's it. I was digging, I was digging into the, the OWASP. Mm. And in fact, we're going to have to have a podcast to explain all of these terms so the people that are hearing these that, that haven't come across them. We'll cover that in a different podcast. But my uh, understanding, the OWASP does break down their metric mm. of, uh, of why they come up with these figures, okay. right? And it, and it is things like probability of exploitation uh, as opposed okay. to just um, number of occurrences. Yeah, so it's not so, just for the lulls. Yeah, or just favoritism, or um, what some people say, which is, um, oh, they ask they ask the community, right? And the community grade them, and then you mm. get bias through things like, 
Why is log management suddenly in the OWASP top 10? Well, maybe they asked a lot of logging companies. Yes, quite possibly. The explanation within the documentation is that isn't the case. It, okay. It's a, a balance based on a published metric, and there's some numbers behind there for people who are curious. So my takeaway is, yeah, it's it's more around the probability of exploitation as to why that's fallen. Mm. But yeah, it turns out that cross-site scripting is a freaking awesome vulnerability. It is, and people should definitely make more use of it. Yeah. We mentioned bug bounties, though. I guess um, th- those are worth a, a little bit of a shout-out just in terms of what an absolute... Oh, what's the polite way of putting my, my issue with bug bounties? You can't just start doing a bug bounty, right? You can, but it's not going to succeed. Yeah. And you're going to get... So how much do you want to rail on bug bounties? Should we give the pros and cons? Quick introduction to bug bounties, I guess we should go with first. Yeah, it's sure. where uh, instead of paying professional security testers to come in and deliver a professional service... You either open a closed bug bounty where you invite researchers to look at your site or another way of doing it is to just release a statement that says to people you can hack us mm-hmm. under the agreement that if they find a vulnerability, they'll disclose it to you. And then you can either pay them money for that on a paper vulnerability model or you can give them some swag or you can give them some thanks or something like that. But the whole uh, issue being letting anyone hack you. Mm. Like, that must make a uh, response harder, right? I'm trying not to... To show my bias as a pen tester. The, yeah. the, the, the pen tester here is going to be like, use pen testing, right? But, sure. but bug bounties exist. Right. Um, coverage, isn't it? But then you limit coverage based on scope. So let's be honest, most pen testing engagements are never giving carte blanche to pen test everything you should be doing. Mm-hmm. Right. But we cripple you as a business. Um, yeah, you can do a three plus one. So three days of testing, one day of report writing, um, which is obviously a tick box exercise because... You know, you need to cover the whole site. You need to have 10 days. You need to do recon. You need to do it properly. But that's never going to happen with limited budgets. Um, creating a bug bounty program, I think there's a belief that, A, it's cool. Um, yeah, we have a bug bounty program. Look at us, aren't we? The, you know, I mean, at least it was three years ago. Um, and you have continual, <laughs> in air quotes, continual testing from a pool of people who can test you anytime they want. There's no terms of engagement. They can just have a pop whenever. The only problem with bug bounties, or one of the problems, is A, you have fatigue. So you basically get the same guys testing the same... They just run through their, like, oh, what's common? And they just run through those things every single time, and they don't test anything beyond that. If you're engaging a pen tester, yes, they have a framework, but they're actually probably going to learn your site, and you have a continual education, and also it's their job to to improve. So if you pen test re- repeatedly, you're going to get better coverage with a pen testing engagement than you are with a bug bounty because most bug bounty practitioners are just going to burn the stuff they know over and mm. over and over. And you'll never get that <clears throat> full coverage. But there's a belief that you do. Yeah, I think I think to, to add to that, a, a part of it is um, as a business, if you are solely using bug bounties, mm. and I think most people would say that's probably a bad idea. Yes. Um, yeah, you'll you'll get coverage. A lot of people will look at your site and those kinds of things, but um, you don't know, do you? You don't know what's being being looked at. It's not like uh, where you have an engagement with a pen tester where you can ask them what areas, what functionality, and what ways did they test for the book bank. It's just um, try what you think is popular, common, or works yeah. for you. And then there's obviously the question of scope as well. I think... You know, you'd say what's in and what's out from both sides. You do it from a bug bounty side, you do it from a pen test side. Um, I, I did read again on Twitter recently, there's some dude had uh, started shouting about how come he didn't get paid for a bug he'd found, and the response was it was outside of scope. Yeah, and, and I see a distinction between bug bounties and something I've never experienced on pen testing is some bug bounty programs will out of scope based on vulnerability type. 
So I saw a very funny one that I, I won't disclose which company it was, but it was to do with uh, vehicle automation. Mm-hmm. And um, they won't pay for cross-site scripting vulnerabilities. They don't think it's a risk. Well, that's one way of taking it. Or, alternatively, they have so many of them oh, that yes. they can't process oh, triage. They already know about it. Yeah. That's another one as well. It's like, I found this bug. Oh, yeah, we know about that. So we're not going to pay you. Yeah, that, yeah. that makes me twitch. <laughs> yeah, I just uh, revenge now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so book book bounties are awesome. You should all check them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're one approach to security. I think the big problem with book bounties is having the processes in place, right, to actually be able to to triage, yeah. pay out, respond <clears throat> to vulnerabilities. It's managing that bug bounty program internally as well, and probably for some of the less mature companies, there's just how do you even sell that? To, mm. Oh yeah, I'd love to start a bug bounty program. So to the board, well, what's that? We invite a bunch of people we don't know who may or may not have credentials yeah. to attack our site, and then we pay them for the stuff they find. It's genius. Yeah, I, uh, I worked with a company a couple of years ago now, actually, uh, who were releasing a bug bounty program, and the way that they did it was uh, they released it to their staff, yep. so their software developers mm-hmm. could could find bugs yeah, once yeah. the gained maturity there, they released it to a guest list of independent researchers, I think the top 100, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then the intention was that they would go public with it once once everything had been addressed. But the reason that I mentioned that was that particular company, um, they had a go live day on the bug bounty, right? And it was, oh, the 1st of September, are we going to open submissions to the bug bounty? And like within an hour, they had 10 submissions. So Mm -hmm. the question is, were these super easy vulnerabilities that everyone found within an hour, or did they already know about them and they were waiting for the go live day so they could get paid? Well, if I was a developer who had introduced something myself, I mean, you know, not that unethical, but let's say you could do that as well and then just submit it for yourself. Yeah, I, I'm led to believe that they had a rigorous process of uh, git blam to work out if that was mm. taking place. Um, and I, I imagine you can process that away with, oh man, I just, I'm thinking really adversarial now. I was going to say you could process that away by you can't submit bugs in areas that you've worked on and things like that, but yeah, then yeah. you've got friends and they can exactly. do it. Oh, Hackers, why can't you just follow the rules? Well, that's the whole point. We don't. <laughs> they they don't. They don't. Uh, you talked about um, the, the hobbyist approach earlier, though, and said mm. that uh, a part of that back in the day was you know, hacking each other because of the puzzle, because of the yeah, challenge. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and also there's an aspect of helping each other out, right? <clears throat> um, I guess that's been put entirely to just CTFs now, right? We have these playgrounds yeah, we do. where you're allowed <clears throat> to do that here but nowhere else. Do you think that's a problem? Uh, for talent? Yes, that's what I mean. I mean for uh, people yeah. learning how to do this, the next next generation of pen testers. Yeah, if I'm honest. But it's one that there's no solution to. Because obviously you can't advocate that they go out and start poking holes on any site that they want to. CTFs are good. Um, I train my red team guys on CTFs mm-hmm. quite a lot. Um, I write some CTFs for them, some binary stuff that they can do for you know reverse engineering. Um, but it's not the same. It's not giving them that mindset. Well, it is to a certain degree, but... So, for example, back in the day, I had a friend who had some content on a forum. And they want this content removed. And I had a look at it, and there was no way that I could do it or get in to begin with, so I kept having a look. Maybe over about a course of a year, probing, having a play, trying to find a way in. And then one day, there was a software update that came out, 
and it happened to introduce a vulnerability that I was then able to leverage. You don't have that. You don't have that sort of ability. For a CTF, it's instant gratification, right? You kind of know what you're looking for. You're doing a certain puzzle. There's certain ways of like looking to solve that problem. You don't have the adversarial, the long game. It's always a very short game. And I wonder whether or not we're just losing from, if you were to do a pen test now and it's a completely black box test, you're limited by time, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're always going to be limited by time because of, because of the money. But the, pr the problem is that having those skills and having done something that took that long, it kind of gives you a, an idea of things to be looking for in a slightly different way. Because you can follow your playbooks, but if you've, you've, it's the creativity side that I think might be lacking a little bit in our modern pen testers and those guys yeah. starting out. I could be completely wrong. I mean, I haven't done anything from an adversarial pen testing side for at least 20 years. <laughs> I think uh, one of the things there with, with the CTF side of things, just from my own experience, mm. is you know there's an answer. That's it. You know if you keep going <clears> at this this uh, small system, you'll you'll find something. Whereas at testing in the real world, you might not, right? And yeah. you're not testing one small aspect of a company. I don't mean from the pen testing side of things where you're scope restricted. I mean, yeah. hack this company, be it red team or be it um, criminal. Mm. Um you don't have the the vulnerability is here within this. Within it's not, this it's not signposted, right? Yeah, it's not exactly. like we're going to do a challenge whereby you have to capture this type of flag and it's probably, it's related to a algorithm or it's related to a injection. <laughs> Please find it. It's like, right, if, if every pen testing was like that, then, yeah. you know, you'd, it'd be amazing. And it, I'm, unfortunately, I'm pretty sure I've seen some pen test reports whereby you would think that was the case. I want, I want a t-shirt now that just reads something like, in the real world, there isn't always a flag.txt. Mm, that's true, but there may be. Maybe I'm going to start putting those on in Brown's site for the lols. <laughs> Robots.txt is fantastic. Um, I think it's very underutilized. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's the thing, isn't it? When you're, when you're, when you're looking at um, a scope-limited pen test or looking at an yeah. entire organization where you're not restricted by type of vulnerability and those kinds of things. <clears throat> it's like you go back to the sort of the, the LOPHT model of the, you know, the original stuff they always used to chat about would be the long engagements with like months worth of breaking in and setting up and staking out and all the stuff that they used to do. And nowadays it's like, so uh, Holly, I'd like you to do a pen test on my website. You have three days plus one day of report writing. Is that all right? Mm. Yeah is a somewhat broken system but it's our fault for restricting it yeah and, and it doesn't work in the real world so so um so new patch comes out right we've got microsoft's patch tuesday yep. everyone installs their patches immediately without pause I'm of sure. course um but you have the concept of exploit wednesday the patches come out you reverse yeah, engineer yeah, the patches yeah. you find the vulnerabilities and then you have something that you can use but that action of either waiting for a vulnerability to be introduced or waiting to uh be able to leverage a vulnerability is itself time limited. And if that doesn't fit within the three plus one that we've got, yeah. you know, if it's uh, Thursday and yeah. you've hit the patch. Yeah. So everyone schedule your uh, vulnerability or your pen testing for Tuesday. Oh man, I have a, <laughs> a very, very quick but uh, funny story on this exact problem. I worked with a company for a while doing annual testing for them. Mm -hmm. And every time we did a test, we'd wreck them within 30 minutes kind of thing. Yep. Maybe on the third test, it took a couple of hours and they took that as a win and they should take that as a win. They yeah, made yeah. determined improvement. And then when they started getting to the point where it was a challenge, it was taking us a while to get in, the, the company made the decision that they would move us as the pen testing team 
out of the IT department and we work with the finance department because mm -hmm. for their business, those were the people who did the audits, right? Yeah. So they said, okay, for next year's pen test, we're not going to tell the IT team that it's happening. We're going to put you under the fraud team. Just do it, compromise them, and it'll be somewhat more realistic in that way. So somewhat more red teamy, I guess, mm -hmm. even though it was just technical and, and scope limited. Problem was, uh, they booked it the first week of August every time, right? And what had happened is the IT manager had set an Outlook notification for the week before that just popped up and said, patch all the things. Yeah. So it got to that time of year, he got his notification that said patch all the mm -hmm. things, changed all the passwords, installed all the patches, did his diligence that he should do every day yeah. that he actually yeah. did once a year. Yeah. Yeah. And when we came and did the pen test, it was no different to whether we had sat in the company or not, sat yeah. in the IT department. Yeah. And that, that's a problem, though. You end up gaming it, and it's one of those things where you run tabletop exercises and stuff, and it's all like, don't tell everyone that it's coming. But you can't be in that day, uh, so you have to be off-site, and I'm... Very un, I'm never unavailable, so well, I'm going to randomly be unavailable for one day <laughs> and then suddenly something's going to kick off. I think my team are bright enough to know that something's going on. But we used to do a lot of BCP stuff at uh, the bank I was at beforehand and, you know, they were a mixed bag of success. And the red teaming engagements that we did there were actually, they were good. Long, long engagements. But that's the difference, right? If you're working for an organization that has the money and understands, or maybe not, I think companies do understand, it's the importance. It's, can you allocate the right amount of money to your IT security teams or your testing? And that's a hard ask, especially in retail, whereby it's all profit and loss and very thin margins. Yeah, and we, we talk about, about testing and, and hacking, right? But there's, like you say, with, with tabletop exercises, there's a lot more to security. There's the whole, whole incident response side of things. There's the whole, um, we have an event and it's like, okay, is this an incident? Is this a breach? Yeah. Is, and you're not really operating on, on the full information. And then you've got other things like, you know, uh, passive recon um, or jumping into dumpster diving. Did we ever get to the outcome of that? Was that passive or active? Oh, God. Oh. <laughs> Gee, oh, I think it's 2-1 for making me twitch. There we go. Uh, dumpster diving yeah, is yeah. active on it account of the fact that any action that can allow a security guard to drag you away is active. Where this comes from, for those people who don't intimately follow me on Twitter, which you should, at Holly Gressel, um, nice plug. I, uh, I was reading. I don't know what it was. It was. Um, it was from a book. I'm sure Twitter will have the answer. But it was something like the Security Plus exam or the CH yeah. exam. Or yeah, something yeah, like yeah. That. One one of those that I that I um, read just to see how certifications are in this day and age. And and they referred to dumpster diving as a passive attack. Mm -hmm. The justification, I believe, being well, you're not touching the the computer system. Yeah, there's no systems involved. And uh, my argument is that it's active mm -hmm. because. If a security guard can chase me down the corridor and tackle me, then it then it's active, right? And I think really where the confusion there in hindsight came from is is the use of the word attack. Yeah. It's active recon. It's active recon. But the the Twitter poll, everyone everyone agreed. It, not yeah. everyone. It's like yeah. it was pretty well split, but it, it's active overall. It is definitely active. I mean, I have actively jumped into dumpsters in the past to actively gather gather uh, information. Um, so you know. <laughs> Maybe not so much these days. That's that's old school, though, right? I mean, I know we still use it, but but um, dumpster diving for uh, credentials, dumpster diving mm -hmm. for information about a company, that shouldn't happen anymore, should it? We should we just... should be cross-shredding the crap out of everything. You need to, secure disposal. You need to inject ink into the paper, cross-shred it, and then burn it. So, I mean, we used to, in 
Yeah, we used to look at uh, a few dumpsters for system manuals um, mm -hmm. and actually hard disks <laughs> back because it was that long ago. Yeah. But literally hard disks, unencrypted hard disk with a shit ton of data on there and the amount of valuable information you would find after you got through the banana peels and the coffee yeah. grinds was uh, was impressive. Um, but yeah. I've got some active dumpster diving for you that doesn't involve getting in a dumpster, which is always nice. Oh. Uh, one, one of the things that I've always thought about is if you're on a, a really difficult pen test, if you're doing a physical access mm -hmm. for a small company, 10 or less employees, yep. it, it can be really difficult to uh, coerce your way into the building, right? Because they yes. all know each other, yep. they all work in the same room, those kinds of things. But I always imagine that it would work if you just walked in and said, I'm here to collect the shredding. Oh, yeah. That they would just give you it, right? And very often it's it's not... You know, it's taken off site to be shredded. It is. Uh, yeah, most of the stuff, most of the bins, the secure disposal bins, are padlocked with a padlock that would not take you more than five minutes to uh, pick. And you do not shred that data before it goes into that bin. So, yeah, you know what? I'm going to try that. That's definitely active, though. Where do you keep your uh, data? Where's your secure bins in the, this but office? <laughs> oh, you, you presume our bins are secure? Oh, yes. I've told course. you, we inject ink into them, we crush red them and burn them. Yeah, your floor does, but what about those guys over there? I couldn't comment on another organization. <laughs> <laughs> that does, uh, gesturing out of the window, that does make me laugh. I was doing a, a wargaming session for a mm. company oh, ages ago, a year ago now, and they have this lovely glass-fronted building, and we're mm. on the third or fourth floor in this boardroom. And um, we were talking about these kinds of security risks and, and how to address them. And they just gestured out the window and like, well, what about those guys? And as you turn, you can see the other company's meeting rooms and, you know, yep, the, the Wi-Fi passwords on the whiteboard and all of that kind of thing. Where was I recently? Is that passive dumpster diving? <laughs> I think that is passive recon, right? That's not active. Or is it because you're using your eyes to see? But that must be passive. Passive must recon. Be. I mean, I was somewhere recently. Where was I? I don't know, but it's a hacker mentality, isn't it? There was a period of time where, you, and I'm sure you have this as well, where you walk into a building and you're there for a non, like say you're there for a personal reason, whatever, you know, just checking out crashes or nurseries, right? And you're like, okay, so that's a password there. That system's unlocked. And it's just like you you, you, you can't get out of that mind space. Yeah. You can never unplug. It's like trying to case a bank sometimes. I showed a, a photograph recently at a presentation that I did where um, it, the photograph was taken from behind the security desk because there's a photograph mm -hmm. that I've taken. The, the idea being that if I can take the photograph, I'm unattended, right? I'm at yes. the security yeah, desk, yeah, I'm yeah. unattended. Because uh, that, or if I can coerce the security guard, do you mind if I come around here and take some photographs? I'm doing well anyway. Yes. And there's three monitors on the desk and um, one was locked, but you could see from the screen server it was Windows XP. Ooh. One's unlocked and it's the security guard's email, right? Or very obviously Outlook. Yeah, yeah. It's got two great things to play with here. And then the, the third uh, screen was the building CCTV. Yep. So if you had managed to get behind the security desk and the security guard's walking around, you can watch him on his route and see how much time you've got. Exactly. I mean, oh the security, the DVRs and the security recording equipment, have you ever done any hardware pen testing or pen testing on those systems? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The amount of times, like stupid stuff, like you're able to, as part of your diagnostics within the, the DVR thing, you could ping another, another uh, IP address, but you could also pipe any other command mm -hmm. that you wished to do into that. And it's like, well, come on. We still haven't figured out the basics, have we? Is that an injection attack? That's it a is an command in injection? It is. Oh, what's top ten? Is, uh, number there one. you go, number one. So, <laughs> yeah, maybe I should just get them tattooed on my body as a way of, you know, just remembering them because they never bloody change. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
one that one that confused me was that A2 has gone from broken authentication and session management to broken authentication. Yeah. Uh, it's just a change of wording, right? Yeah, yeah. When you read the description, it's just it's easier exactly to say. Exactly the same. There's like less wordy. Yeah. Um, so we talked about uh, the hobbyist approach and we talked about the, the CISO lifestyle of talking to the board and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, where's the middle ground there? Where? How did one become the other, do you think? So uh, for all of these hackers who uh, grew up being hobbies, are yeah. they now all CISOs? Is that... God, no. Uh, two of my crew were dead, so uh, they definitely didn't make it. Um, how do you make that transition, or how does that transition come about? So, I mean, if you look at the... L- let's look at LOPHD, right? So they were probably the archetypes for us back in the day, well, for mm-hmm. me anyway, because I'm assuming I'm like 20 decades older than you. If you look at that, so Mudge ended up being, he's like one of the guys from LOPHD. They ended up testifying to Congress back in the 90s. I think it was 20 years recently that they testified to Congress about the state of the U.S. security for critical national infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And then they went on to be advisors for DARPA and run, you know, different sort of, uh, probably not CISOs, but at least heads of or very research-based. So I think for a certain type of person, it probably is a natural progression, but I think there's, you know, some people are interested in the overall hygiene, security hygiene of making the world a little better place, you know, doing your best to take some of that knowledge from the hobbyist days, the black hat ways, the understanding of the mindset and apply that into business to try and, you know, uplift the overall, I mean, I guess that's why I do it. And I'm sure that there's a number of people who have also grown up in that way. But then there's the other side of things whereby you want to remain full hands-on techie. I mean, don't get me wrong. I would absolutely kill to spend two hours a day doing some research or three hours a day, even just doing a pen test. But it's now 98% of my day is meetings. But doing that is me educating businesses. And I am paid to go in and make those changes, to create those teams, to educate, to inform, uh, and ultimately secure. So I think it depends on your personality type as well, Mm -hmm. whether or not you're willing to put yourself outside of your comfort zone, maybe give up doing something that you really enjoy for the better good. That makes me sound like I might have some sort of morals or ethics. Or at least evangelizing. Yeah. Getting into that kind of area, aren't we? Yeah. I guess guess my question was loaded, though, because I said, uh, you know, these people building up to being CISOs, and and that isn't the only option, right? So a lot of companies don't have a CISO. No, they don't. Um, but also, should the CISO role, if you're a, a junior pen tester or yeah. you're, you're a bug hunter or a hacker, or, sure. should you be thinking that CISO is the end of your very long career path, or is there some other option? I think there needs to be some other option. Um, I think the, the CISO role is maybe a bit dated now. Um. I think we should be looking to create a CTSO. So I think we should be looking for a chief technical security officer. If you're looking at the CISOs, most of that, maybe not most, but there is a predominantly, the CISO is an, is a MBA, is more of the business so the, side. So the CTSO is for, for people who never managed to get an MBA? Is that what we're saying? What are you saying? Are you casting aspersions at my qualifications here? Holy shall have not, you. not at all. But I mean, there is there is something I mentioned it on that on our last podcast. Actually, somebody floated the idea with me. They said, um, "Do you think in the future that the CISOs uh, should have a technical degree or a business degree?" And their argument was they should have a business degree because they're in the boardroom um, talking to business. But I guess what we're saying here is, 
there shouldn't be the only option. There no. should be something else. Well, there should be both. I think your your role for a CISO... Okay, so if you if you think about the way that things have changed now, so your, your CISO is your information guy, right? Mm -hmm. You should be looking at the wider set of how do we protect the company's assets and their information, right? And understand, talk to the board. But then if you've got like a, a C... You've got a CIO, right? And you've got a CTO. So why don't you have like for like within the CISO role or within the, the security space. Surely there should be a chief technical security officer who's sitting there with a technical understanding. And I'm not saying they need to have a degree or they need to have gone and got a PhD or a master's in security or any of those things. They should just understand technology and understand it well. It should be a case of, you know, a junior security practitioner, be it an analyst, be it a pen tester, who works their way up over the course of 20 years, who delivers secure solutions, moves into security engineer, then moves into an architect role, works across a broad spectrum, and then maybe they end up taking, in 10 years' time, say the CTSO, CTSO is actually a board-level position. There mm -hmm. should be a technical representative on the board. It shouldn't just be an MBA guy who understands information risk and compliance they need to have that technical thing because we're running at pace now. We are continually looking at new systems, trying to be innovative, trying to save money. We are either outsourcing, then realizing that's a bad idea, and insourcing, and we are lacking, I think, across most companies, that CTSO role, a guy who is technical enough to sit at the board and have those difficult conversations and translate those difficult conversations to the rest of the board. Cool, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I don't think I was as pushing to say like, oh, you must have a certain kind of degree. But I think that mm. the distinction there is it's uh, primary business but tech aware or primary tech but business aware. It's that kind well, I think of there's, I think there's a split. I think yeah. there should be two roles. And I think that there's room for both. But I think one is the business side and one is the technical mm -hmm. side. Cool. Um, so as a head of security, what what's your recommendation? Should companies be doing... Just annual pen testing? That's good, right? We've done annual pen testing for forever now, so that must be the, the right thing to do. Yes, obviously. That's why there's no longer any breaches and everything's fine now. I'm glad we've solved security. I'm glad too. It's uh, great to uh, be on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, <clears throat> once a year pen testing doesn't yeah, work. It doesn't work at all. Uh, you really are just doing your tick box exercise. Though. But we've already disparaged bug bounties. What but it's not just that. I mean, you've got to have, and I hate to wheel it out, but it's defense in depth, isn't it? It's the layers of security. It's the understanding that you need to have secure coding life cycles. You need to have user awareness training. You need to stop looking at the end user as a threat. You need to educate them and make them an asset. You need to do your pen testing. You probably need to have an internal pen test resource as well, who's, you know, maybe not going to stand up from a compliance point of view. You're not going to rule out his report because it's a self-testing and it's a little bit gamed because you want to have that independent third-party thing. But you need to have maybe an internal pen testing resource. You have to look at maturing into the red team and the blue team, so your adversarial guys and your blue team guys, and then creating the, the purple team whereby it all feeds back in and you just have this continual improvement loop. This all sounds very expensive, though. Mm. It's I think uh, just to add something to that, though, something mm. that, so usually I declare my bias before I talk about it, but, you know, oh, I'm a pen tester. This is what I think. Um, it might be surprising to some people who are listening that as a pen tester, I love it when companies have pen testers or they have mature vulnerability management plans. The reason for that is I don't want to get on site and say, you haven't patched the server in six years, yep. Carphone Warehouse. I, I want... 
to be able to come in and do the cool stuff. And if you've got some capability in-house, and they might not be perfect because you've yeah. only got one or two people and sure. they don't get a lot of on-the-job training or your training budget small, those kinds of things, it's still the stuff that I don't want to look at has been identified. So if you're looking at getting rid of the low-hanging fruit, right, which is the majority of stuff... Try not to use that phrase. You've, you've ruled it out now. You've low-hanging fruit. It's just another one of those... Look, come on. I've been in the industry 20 years. I speak to the board. So. <laughs> All credibility and my soul has gone now. I used to be good. Um, <laughs> so if you want to get rid of the low-hanging fruit... Thanks, Holly. Yes. If you want to get rid of those easily <laughs> identified vulnerabilities across your estate, then yes, having an internal pen test resource is probably going to be useful. I mean, we were very fortunate... Um, we tend to invest in our team and we've actually put our, one of our guys uh, through his SANS uh, G-Pen course, which is a fairly hefty uh, qualification, especially for a retailer. And that allows us to do internal pen testing, collate results, and then pass those over to the pen test companies that we are engaging with. And also it's good to have multiple pen test companies on your books for scheduling and availability. Um and that allows them to come in and see the sort of the lay of the land. So it's not it's not a black box anymore. It's kind of like a gray box attack. Mm -hmm. And it gives the, you know, for a start, you can validate his findings mm -hmm. or their findings. Um, you can check that they've been closed if we've managed to remediate them. And then it also gives you a better idea of where you can go a bit more in depth. You can say, okay, cool. This has already been addressed. We can do a quick 10 minutes on this. And then we can look at some of the more exotic attacks. Yeah. So having that internal resource, I think, is really important. And you know what? There's there's a lot of pen testers out there. It's It's, you know... It's a growing market, and these got you know you're constantly in demand. If you're a pen tester now, it's a nice it's a nice sweet spot to mm, be in. Definitely, as you mentioned, you use the term grey box testing mm. there though, and this is the thing that generally makes me twitch. Where we talk to customers about the distinction between black box and white box testing, right? Mm -hmm. So in in short, black box testing, testing a system without any prior information of it. White box testing, testing with prior information. Generally, it could be sitting down with the um, engineer who built it. It could be code. It could be network diagrams. Those kinds of things. Grey box somewhere in the middle. Very often when I'm doing internal infrastructure assessments, so mm -hmm. plugging in as a malicious member of staff or something like that, companies will say, oh, we want this to be a black box engagement. We're not going to tell you anything about the system. From an inside the firewall perspective, what's, what information would you give me anyway? A network diagram? I'm probably not going to look at it. IP addresses? Well, are, we, are we implying that port scanning is difficult? Well, uh, for some people and some pen testers I've had on site who didn't know how to update their host files, yes. Oh, okay. So it depends on your quality of your... And also, I don't think he should have been referred to as a pen tester. But still, the, the point is that... Scanner monkey. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Scan, scanner monkey is great. Uh, I know how to do Nmap. Oh, wait, I don't have Nmap. Uh... Yeah. yeah. Start, start trying to discover hosts by using the ping command and fast typing. Or, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, it's... It is, you know, it, it can be tricky to, uh, when you go back, we, we have, it's always going to be a grey box, sorry, a black box test mm -hmm. to a certain extent. White box, what, yeah, I mean, I guess you could get network diagrams. But, I think, yeah. I think that the point that I, I'm making is um, all, in, not always, there's some edge cases, but generally with those kinds of engagements, all the distinction between black box and white box is, is, how quick it takes me to start actually popping boxes. A white box assessment, I'll be faster. I'll be hitting things that are meaningful as yeah. opposed to doing a and lot I guess of it, mapping. It depends on the scope as well, right? So if you say, okay, well, we want you to do an internal 
assessment of us and, mm -hmm. you know, here is our core systems, please have a pop at these boxes or yeah. these are the ones you shouldn't be pop, which is more often. <laughs> yeah. This is another problem whereby, you know, we, we talk about pen testing and we say, look, you know, you know, do we need to, need to do an annual pen test, right? Well, it's not just the annual pen test. It's also the amount of times that we cripple the scope to the point whereby it's ineffective. And also, you know what? Last time I checked uh, as a hacker, it was never a time that went, oh, wait, I shouldn't be attacking that piece of system because if it falls over, I might cause the company some damage. But literally, as a pen tester, like, sorry, I'm sorry, you can't test that production system because if you bring it down, our business stops. Well, what happens if that's the place where all the vulnerabilities are? As a hacker, I'm not going to, like, care that it's a mission-critical system. If I bring it down, your site stops working. Also, for a, a criminal, a denial-of-service attack is a valid finding. Yeah, it is. It is. Um... I, I tested a, a system a little while ago where the company was so paranoid about the A of the CIA triad availability mm -hmm. yeah. that they were sending so much traffic to monitor that everything was alive that they'd basically saturated all of their links nice. with nothing but monitoring traffic. Nice. So when the, the tester who went in to, to do the initial port scans, do some mapping and things like that, started knocking things over, not because anything was breaking, but just because links were saturated. That's amazing. That is amazing. And yeah, no, I can I can totally see that where you've got this massive paranoia and you must monitor all the things that are critical and you literally have got no bandwidth left and you start, you know, slow rate, you know, paranoid scanning, maybe, perhaps. So annual pen testing doesn't work and we need to do something different. We need to do, it's not just about that. It's, there's a misconception to think that that's enough. Mm. For me, having that, asking that question is, and I know why you're asking that question, but it's it's insane. Of course it's to not. get people to buy more pen tests. Well, yes, no, I understand that you have a business to run, and that's absolutely <laughs> fine. And yeah. that wasn't wasn't at all what I was uh, saying. The, the whole point is that you can't. If there's just somebody sitting there saying, "Yeah, it's fine. We've got some policies, and we do annual pen tests," then you are failing, and it is only a matter of time before you are seriously breached. Also, if you could just uh, tweet at me, which companies those are. <laughs> I think I think you mentioned one way of addressing that, though, right? Mm. Talked about it earlier. An internal pen testing resource, yeah, and it they helps. can. What is it? Uh, business as usual testing, then, right? It's yeah. just we we hit things with the amount of time that that resource has got, and we allocate time to. In fact, I think I sent you a pen test schedule that I'm looking for you guys to to help me out with. And on there, there are the sites that he is testing, and he has allocated days exactly the same way that I allocate days to the companies that I want to engage with. And you know, he he learns, I learn, and we can share intel. Oh yeah, absolutely, and and that that is a big thing. If you have an internal pen test resource and you are procuring pen tests externally, mm. that collaboration, right? That's going to be good. So we it get is. the benefit of uh, your tester intimately knows your systems yes. and and knows the history of those systems. Exactly. So like, hey, we've seen these vulnerabilities before, mm -hmm. patch regression, that kind of thing, yep. and and they get the benefit of another tester to talk to, right? If you've only got one or two, a little bit of on the job training. Yeah, I mean that's one of the things that I always enjoy is when you have, um, you know is sort of on-prem pen testers and you know I've, I, I still wish I could dabble and it's nice to have those conversations with them apart from if they don't know how to update their host file but besides that it's nice to see how things have progressed what these guys are finding and you get those you get those interesting conversations about what excites them what vulnerabilities they find you know what what they'd like to you know to move forward to and it's a, you, you have that, that bit of a knowledge exchange most people think I'm probably just the old dude sitting on his porch now toting his shotgun talking about the good old days but you know at least they humor me <laughs> uh, well that that's the end of, of my run of questions is there anything that you think pivotal that we haven't talked about 
Not that I can think of. I think we've had a, a fairly good little conversation today. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, uh, I'll hand it out to the audience then. I think the thing I'll be interested in from the audience is that discussion we had about the seesaw role, right? Mm. Um, how do people see that developing in the future? Is your organization at the stage where you're just trying to get a CISO? Or are you moving towards the CTSO kind of role? Do you have both? Let us know over social media. I'd be very curious just to see what you guys think of that role. Um, and also, how do you envisage pen testing changing in the future? Are we going to be going to just more pen testing more frequently? Or will it be something more interesting? Let us know. And thank you very much, Mike, for coming in. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you very much. Thank you.